0: Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm one of your hosts. I'm Essie Fleenor,
2: And I'm here with another host, my dear friend, Sarah Century. Hi, Essie. It's nice to meet you. (laughs) So good to meet you, dearest friend. Yeah. (laughs) I think that things are going to be friendly between us so we are here with a (laughs) another person (laughs) our guest for today who is molly naylor thank you for joining us today molly oh my god thank you for having me Yes, we want to hear everything about you, Um, (laughs) but we can start with this book and then also a little bit about some of the other things you do, because this book is based on a performance. Yeah, it seems like you do a whole bunch of different things. I would love to hear about it great yeah I'm uh, I do too much
3: I am like a nightmare to talk to like it's fine if I'm having a conversation like this but I, I don't have like a sound bite for what I do and so I panic when like I'm in a taxi and and they're like what so what do you do and I, I'm just like oh god I do I do loads of different things yeah. So my recent project was this comic, um, *Lights Planet's People*, which was my first graphic novel. Like I've wanted to make one for so long, and I, ha- I had a sort of failed attempt a few years ago, and then I came and came back to it with this with this idea, and I'm so glad that I came back. You know, sometimes you have a failure, and you're like, right, I'm never going to work in that form again. But this form just—it's so compelling to me. So, yes, I'm just rambling now. I mean, what's the- what was the question?
2: What shall I tell you? <laughs> I get it though. What's your deal, Molly? <laughs> Literally, like every time I'm in an Uber or something, and somebody's just like, "Oh, what kind of writing do you do?" I'm just like, "Dear God, <laughs> like, why is it such a bad please. question?" Because I lo- I do like talking about it. It's just yeah, it's too
3: it's like too broad, isn't it? So like it, I don't know. But maybe someone said to me the other day, like you, when you answer a question, you shouldn't answer the question. You should you should just answer the question you want to be asked.
2: Do you know what I mean? Whereas, but I'm like, no, that's marketing. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. That I think, yeah, that's like good advice for a politician, maybe, but not a not a person.
0: (laughs) I hope that you institute that at some point in our conversation today. I hope you just switch into that mode. Don't even tell us when, and we'll see if we can spot it. Yeah, okay. Um, But we'll probably just be vibing so hard. We'll be like, oh, I love it. Took it in a direction. Um, Amazing. So yeah, I mean, you're a, a playwright you're a performing artist, you're a poet, you are uh, a director... You have a feature film coming up. You've written. I mean, I'm just listing the things I know and I'm not you. <laughs> uh, you've written a TV show for is it Sky One? I always forget the name of the TV over there. Yes,
3: it's for it's for Sky, which is now on now TV. I don't know if you guys have that, but yeah, so like all these different things. So basically, like this is what happened. So <laughs> I went to I went to, a, a, <laughs> I went to drama school and I wanted to be an actor. And then like I got halfway through my degree and I just I, I, just became a bit disillusioned with acting because I wanted to tell the stories and I just didn't feel like, I don't know, I just wanted to have more control over the stories. Um, and I didn't feel like you could really do that, particularly as an actor. So I got really into writing and directing and it's hard, right? And I think I'm quite a late bloomer and I think I was a bad writer for a very long time. And so I had to have a lot of years of like living and having like shit jobs and dreadful times and so that I could have stuff to write about. And then when I had this like breakdown summer, I don't know if either of you guys had that breakdown summer where you have to like move back in with your parents and things aren't going so well. So I had a breakdown summer like that. (laughs) Yep, Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like every summer. Yeah. And um, and then during that summer, I just like spontaneously decided to do a master's and I moved to Norwich to do that master's in the east of England. And it's like this great creative writing program. And so I moved there. And that was when like life started to happen for me properly. I was like 25 and I met proper friends and I was in a community and I started doing performance poetry, which was like the first time I guess I'd ever done anything on stage. And then I ended up writing this like long form solo show about the shit times that I'd been having for the last few years. And that sort of launched my career because I then took that to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival after like a long time trying to make it good, which was where I then like got an agent and, and then a like radio producer came who helped me adapt it into a script for a radio play. And that was when I started becoming someone who could like maybe call themselves a writer without sort of cringing and like, trying to disappear. And and so since then, I've just had this, like, yeah, really varied career where I just kind of, because I never, I went to do my master's to try and be a script writer. And then, and then I ended up doing this, like, performance poetry thing. And so I've sort of just, like, followed my nose, really, and kind of, I've figured out this career where everything is, like, ideas-based. So rather than just go, like, oh, I write for this, I, I have an idea, and then I go, what is that idea? What's the form for it? Because when you're first starting out, like, I have some sense of what it's like in the States. But here, it's, like, hard to be a script writer. It's really competitive. And I sort of realized quite early on, if I was just shooting for this, like, one specific thing, I was going to end up not writing very much. Or, like, just writing on my own in my bedroom and it not going Mm. anywhere. Mm -hmm. So I've just found ways to be like, okay, I have control over this specific area of my career i'm going to make a one-woman show and i'm going to take it to the fringe and no one can stop me and then while i'm doing that i'm also going to be trying to like pitch a film and then while i'm doing that uh this film hasn't worked but maybe it could be a script for a graphic novel or do you know what i mean so it's just i'm very like now i love that about my career sort of at the beginning i was like oh this is weird and embarrassing and i can't talk to taxi drivers but now i'm like it's great <laughs> because then i have an idea and then i go right what is it what what is this and that sometimes means i'm working in a form that I'm quite inexperienced in like with graphic novels but then I I love that and you know I'm, I'm sort of open to learning and being new and having like beginner's mindset and um, because I think why not right and I even if you've been doing something for five years you're probably there's still so much to learn anyway so it's like why not start fresh all the time <laughs> and see and see what happens so that's kind mm. of turned into like yeah the way I do things. And it's fun, but I'm tired quite a lot. But then we're, we are all are. <laughs> so that's just normal.
2: It's true. I was thinking that that is very much kind of what you have to do sometimes, though. Like, I've definitely had people, because I do a lot of different kinds of writing, People will be like, oh, well, you should like try to kind of streamline everything you do into one thing, or you should write under all of these different aliases. And I'm like, how can I have that many aliases, though? Like, there's too much. It just has to be me, and then I will adjust as I go along when you're getting advice from people, whenever you're just first starting out or whatever, I think that versatility was never something that people emphasized with me. Like people would not ever say that. They'd be like, you need to find your brand or something like that. And it's like, well, what if versatility is my brand? You know, what do you think of that? Yeah, (laughs) well,
3: I was going to ask you, like, what I think then that it's like, versatility is your brand, but also like being you as your brand and your themes, right? Like, so like, yeah. you, do you find that you're writing, that there's a uniformity and a unity to like the topics you're talking about across different work?
2: Mm-hmm, definitely. And I imagine it's the same for you because I think that you can approach things in so many different ways through different mediums or the fact that like, sometimes I do, I'll do like horror writing or I'll do, you know, writing for ad week or something. And whenever I write for ad week, I always think, oh, well, this must just be commercial writing and like, it's just something that's dialed in. And then I look at my pieces and I'm like, I'm so emotional. (laughs) Like whenever I write about pretty much anything, that emotional quality is always there because it's just how I write about things is like to tap into the thing that I think is emotionally resonant. And I think that that's true in ads. And I think that that's true in comics. I think that that's true just really across the board for me. So I think that it's very true. So how does that reflect in your work? Do you think that there are certain themes that you've been returning to? Definitely. And I
3: I feel like sometimes I, I look at the, my themes, I'm like, oh my God, I'm just writing the same story over and over again. <laughs> and it's mainly, it's like, it's about, it's about failure. It's about like self-acceptance and failure. It's about like, what happens when we fail and how do we pick up? selves back up again. And that's basically every story I ever write. I also write a lot about letting go. And I think maybe that's part of the same thing. Um, and like just difficult relationships, like between people, like being alive is tricky. Being around people is tricky. Being alone is tricky. So those are sort of my areas that I don't feel like I really stray from. And that even like in Lights People, which is like, superficially, it's about like, space science but it's also about a woman who fails at her job and feels bad about it and so it's just with a different backdrop but that like writing about space is like I've that's probably the like most new or like strange thing that I've done. Like, that's— I surprise myself. Because like, often I write about characters who are, like, um, around 39 years old, and they're called, like, Dolly Taylor. And they're like, and they have the same job as me. Do you know what I mean? So I was like, <laughs>
0: yeah. Dolly Taylor! Dolly Taylor! Oh, I'm obsessed. Dolly Taylor. Oh, my God. What's Dolly Taylor's girlfriend's name? Face Metry? Like, oh, my God. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I think in that, in that same vein and, and, you know, I think Sarah and I've been talking to a lot of people about some of the ideas we're talking about here of having an eclectic career, finding some semblance of balance or harmony or what have you. You know, for me, writing across a bunch of different genres, I always think about theme. I think that's a helpful unifying force, but I'm always curious for other creatives like yourself you know we we asked this question of Adrian Marie Brown about how do they choose what project to focus on or when it's right. And they had this like super hippie like fluid response that was like, oh my God, I'm in love with that. And Tina Horn talked about, she likes to have a, a promiscuous career. <laughs> uh, and I think that that is beautiful. The idea that like, you're not, you don't have to, you know, wipe down with any single project unless you want to, <laughs> but you can instead sort of, you know, date around with your projects, which is how I feel about my projects. And mm. some of them are my exes. And I'm like, don't call me.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, my God, oh my God me too. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. So I guess, like, you know, a how do you view that sort of eclectic piece? Like, when you take a step back, is there a hole that comes into view for you? Is it really centered on the themes? And then in turn, like, how do you decide when it's the right time for a project to emerge, especially with, as you've pointed out, there's so much discouragement in the fields that all three of us are in. It's a lot of getting rejected from things and not necessarily always for a reason other than, well, that that person's was just a little bit better than yours or it fit our theme a little better and
3: all those pieces. So how, how do you, you know, keep going with all this on your plate? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, I feel like I'm sort of in a bit of a cycle of like trying to do less and then ending up doing the same amount, but like with the sense that maybe I'm doing a bit less and then I like realise I'm not. But I think, I don't know. I think some stories just, they sort of won't go away, you know? And like this story for Lights, Man, its People, it was just sort of knocking around in my head for so long. And then it was just like, once, once I've like been hanging out with a story for a certain amount of time, I'm just like, well, I have to do it. I have to find a way to share it. And I think that the interesting thing is, especially when you're looking at like gatekeepers and the people who are going to make your stuff and producers and all of this stuff, like, it's very easy to feel like they know best. And if you pitch something to someone and they say no, it's easy to feel like, well, they, they're they saying no, because it's not good enough. And I'm not good enough. But actually, the truth is, it could be a million different reasons. They're just like one person or maybe a small team of people. And so if they say no to your idea, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad and there's an inner knowing i think that is much more resonant and important than the idea of someone who's like an outside eye and just also maybe they've got their own agenda and maybe they're like that's like linked to capitalism and so basically if someone is like oh i don't want to make this tv show doesn't mean it's a bad idea it just means that idea might have to be a zine or like a self-published poetry collection or a published poetry do you know what i mean it will find its home somewhere else When I sort of learned that about my own work, it was so freeing because I would i feel like I spent my life being like, those people know best. I hope I can impress them. And like, you know, sometimes I do impress them and sometimes I don't impress them. And I feel like having that balance throughout your career is really important because obviously sometimes you do want access to like the big bucks. And other times you just want to be able to say like, fuck those guys. They don't know anything really. Um, (laughs) I mean, love love them, respect them, take their money. Thank you very much. But also (laughs) like, they're just people. And just because they're people who have got like, loads of money and infrastructure doesn't mean they know any better about what people will like or what deserves to be in the world.
2: Right. And then there's a kind of a lack of being able to experiment with format, right? That's something that pops up again and again, I think. I mean, even in comics, you'll have people who do a lot of work for the big two, but then they do a lot of creator-owned work on the side or something along those lines because you're writing in a very strict format. So there's... Room, you know, like, I mean, I read superhero comics all of the time. So I would say that there's room to do interesting things in those genres. But you're dealing with you know, characters that are action figures and stuff. So there's a lot of things that you cannot do. And so I think that it is important to have kind of a freer format in some ways where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to do this through like a smaller publisher or I'm going to do this as a zine, as you said, anything along those lines, or I'll do this as a podcast or whatever it is. (laughs) I wonder why you brought up a podcast, Sarah. That's
0: so interesting.
2: (laughs) We should start one.
0: (laughs)
3: Okay, come on. I don't think it would work, guys. I don't think you should.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Molly would not be a listener.
2: Damn, Molly. (laughs) Real though, we need the criticism. Um, (laughs) But I basically (laughs) just think that that's kind of a big part of it, right? Is is that there's different formats and different ways of working, but then there is always something to be said about how most of the experimental work or the work that isn't necessarily, you know, in a box is stuff that's through smaller presses or anything along those lines.
3: Yeah, exactly. When there's just like less risk and, and when, yeah, when money isn't as is involved, when capitalism is involved or when someone's not trying to make a profit. And I think that's, so gorgeous that there are people and organizations and I don't, we have the arts council here who fund arts projects and don't, you know, they're not like doing the maths to make sure you make the money that you said you were going to make, you know, there's like that amount of license to fail or license to experiment and explore, which is, you know, we're so lucky to have that here. And I think without those things, it's just going to be this like dreadful, weird business. And it's like, it's art, art's weird. Like, it's really hard. (laughs) To put it through the same, like, filters and metrics as business. And and I guess that's why it's hard to talk about in Ubers. Because, like, one of the first questions is always like, how do you make any money doing that, right? It's always like, yeah, it's kind of, it's complicated.
0: Whenever someone asks me that question, I'm like, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear it. I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear it. Because it's like, I don't ask you how you make all your money for
3: whatever, like, you hustle, you freak out, you cry a lot. That's how I do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a it's such a boring question, isn't it? It's like, of all the things, like I the question I get asked most is like, yeah, how do I make money? But also the question I get asked, like especially after doing like live shows, is like, how do you remember all those words? And it's like, that is the least interesting thing about what's just happened on stage. <laughs> like anyone could do that. <laughs> so I don't know. But I guess like it's such a, to someone who just like has always had like a norm job, I suppose it is a bit like the idea of that hustle and that like creating work for yourself. I suppose it is like an alien concept to a lot of people. And I mm. suppose it takes a certain like type of person to want to do it that way. Because it is it is stressful. But I think like ultimately, I don't think I could do a normal job with that structure. I just, I don't think I have the sort of, yeah, I don't think I'm that kind of person. So like no judgment either way, right? Just we're all designed differently. And I I could just never
2: get up in the morning when I was a kid and that's like fed into my life choices. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that too one of the biggest things that people say though? Because I remember as a kid, people would be like, you cannot be an artist because you won't make any money. And I'd be like, well, people are artists, though. I see it.
3: <laughs> wow. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's also like, Dad, I don't think you're making not making, making any bank, money. You know? Like, what are we talking about here? I'm wearing hand-me-downs. <laughs> you are not making any money. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look
0: at the wonderful things we were able to get from our EBT. <laughs> hey, EBT is amazing. It is. I'm not here it rules. It saved my life as it a child. It saves my life very every grateful day. For it. I don't know if you know the term, Molly, but food stamps is called EBT oh, in the U.S. Oh, EBT. Um... Yeah, so Sarah and I both grew up on that. To some degree, I know Sarah uses that service now as well. So I'm not actually hating on that. It's just like so weird to have someone be like, but you're never going to make money. And it's like,
3: you are literally
0: broke. Yeah, I
2: didn't make money at restaurants. capitalism is the problem.
3: (laughs) Maybe it's not us. (laughs) Yes, amen. (laughs) On that note, how do you make—just (laughs) kidding—
0: Wouldn't that be the worst? You're like, you know what? I hang up. I'm (laughs) Told you your podcast wouldn't work. Um. (laughs) Here's a
1: quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that
0: will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode,
1: so search Sleepwave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice.
3: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling-medical-investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God.
2: And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Bantwine, Coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everybody, it's me, Sarah Century. You might know me as the other person who's been talking on this podcast. (laughs) You know, me. So... (laughs) i'm asking once again (laughs) the bernie sanders meme (laughs) i'm asking once again to rate i am asking once again to review rate and review our podcast which you know if you're still listening i'm hoping that you're having a good time if you're arguing with us in your apartment that's okay because sometimes i listen to podcasts to argue with them in my apartment by myself (laughs) in the audience of my cats too Perhaps I've said too much, but <laughs> if <you laughs> Oh, I don't have anywhere to go after this other than go ahead and read and review, won't you?
0: Well, it seems like now's as good a time as any to jump in and talk a little bit more specifically about light's planets people. It's a particularly interesting project because it's had this long life and iteration, which just reinforces literally everything you were just saying about not letting an idea die if it if it won't die on its own, don't let it die. So I would love to hear about what the first couple of iterations were. I want to hear about this uh, research grant that you got, and then talk a little bit about the process of
3: moving into the graphic novel format. Yeah. So I was invited to this residency a while back, which was oh my God, like, I just miss it all of the time. It was so good. It was just like a week residency that was conceived by this brilliant theatre company called China Plate. They just had this idea to bring together artists and academics, Um, but academics who are working in, like, the sciences. And so they just brought us together for, like, a week. And basically the idea was that the artists would just hang around with these, like, super clever people for a week, listen to all these, like, mini lectures, and then maybe you'd have an idea for some artistic project and maybe you wouldn't. And there was that freedom and you got paid for it and you got all your meals for free. And it was honestly, it was the best week of my life. And I just, yeah, it was so good. <laughs> Not just because of the meals, but like that was a large part of it. But I um, I met all these amazing people and you'd go to like an economics session in the morning and then you'd go to something else and something else and something else. And they were all very inspiring, very interesting, but a bit like my head was sort of spinning And then one of them was this space science talk by this scientist called Don Palacco, who was launching a mission very similar to Maggie's mission in the book. It's what I sort of based her mission on, which is to find habitable exoplanets. And this is a real mission that's going to launch in a few years. It keeps getting put back. He was just so wonderful. And the way he talked about space and it was just this like gorgeous mixture of childlike excitement and massive intellect and I just had this idea about a person, like uh, a woman, I was like, I'm going to make him a woman. And this idea just sort of came to me, like someone who was doing a mission like that, but that it didn't go according to plan, and how heartbreaking that would be, because it's basically his life's work. And so I just came away from that week with this little little idea. And then I I got a grant from the Arts Council, who I mentioned earlier, who are an amazing facility in the UK to kind of develop projects. And then I worked with this actress from Norfolk to develop this show. And I sort of was just like writing it. And then I'd get her to perform it. And then I'd do another draft and get her to perform it. And it was sort of uh, this amazing process, quite intense process, that eventually came up with the show that I was sort of happy with, or as happy as you ever are with a piece of work. And we took it on tour in the UK. And it was one of those projects where, like, you take one step forward and then one step back. You know, we had lots of, we had this brilliant start, but then there were lots of, like, little failures along the way or little, like, hurdles, basically. Like, it was like the universe saying, I'm not sure you should be doing this project. It, you know, sometimes it feels like that. Um, but, it was, but it was wonderful. And it was amazing taking it out into the world. But by the end of the project, by the end of, like, the tour, it felt like this can't be the end of the life of this story. Because especially like, you know, when you do something live and then it doesn't exist in any other form. And I don't know, it sounds quite greedy, but I just felt like I want more people to see this character. And And Karen Hill, who was the actor I work with, she'd done such an amazing job of helping me develop Maggie, basically, the main character. And so I just felt like I wanted more people to, to meet Maggie and spend time with her. And so... I thought about making it like a radio play. And I went down a few exploratory alleys trying to make that happen. And then ultimately, I was like, no, I think it's visual. I think I want it in a book. I want to be able to see it. And I'd tried to make a graphic novel a few years ago that had failed sort of spectacularly. And so I was like, oh, maybe it's this. Um, And then I pitched it to Lizzie Stewart, who's the artist, who's amazing. And she's, you know, she's like a very established comics artist and very brilliant. And luckily I knew her in real life from, we have mutual friends. And so it wasn't a complete cold call. It was like, she'll like at least read the email. Do you know what I mean? And so she did read the email and she like read a bit of the script of the play. And then she was like, to be honest, Molly, like this is just words. I don't know how this would be a comic. Like it doesn't it doesn't speak to me. And I was like, Fuck yeah! I can see why you would think that because it's just a monologue, and I had I'd had all these other ideas for how it could be visual, but I hadn't expressed them. So I was like, "Oh, can we can we go for a cup of tea and maybe to, uh, I can share my thoughts?" <laughs> and it was like such a relief that like she's a really nice person and knows people I know, so she didn't think I was crazy so she did actually agree to and that's that was when the conversation started getting exciting and creative because then she could see that i was thinking about its potential on the page not just like because she gets so many people like i guess a lot of artists do a lot of people coming to them being like can you just do some pictures with my words and then we've got a graphic novel and it's like no it's a little bit more complicated than that and so I was glad she got to understand that that wasn't what I was saying. Um, but I just hadn't maybe expressed that brilliantly the first time. Um, so then it became this like lovely collaborative conversation, which was, yeah. But then
0: kind of got messed up by the pandemic, right?
3: Yeah, it, well, kind of. It also got messed up before then um, a bit mm. because we we got this like gorgeous pitch together and we, we, we started to like, thinking about what to do with it. And Lizzie had an agent at the time, and she was like, I'm going to get my agent to send it out. So we had this brilliant pitch, or we, we thought it was brilliant. And we met her agent, and it was like a very classic, like, agent conversation where they're like, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, de-, you know, say all the things you want them to say. Um, but then he just sort of disappeared, and we didn't hear anything for like months and months and months and months. And I won't go too into it because it's sort of her story, I guess. But, like, in the end, like, she doesn't work with that agent anymore. And basically, we were in this position where things had gone kind of badly with him. And we didn't know if he'd ever sent it to anyone. But we didn't feel like we could sort of check. Do you know what I mean? Without sort of saying, like, we don't believe that he did it. It was just a very, like, sticky position. And I think, like, I find myself in these positions all the time with these people in power where you're, like, you feel like you're grateful for the breadcrumbs that they might or might not give you. And it's a very frustrating situation because you're like, I just want to ask these direct questions and I can't. And so that knocked the project back and I think it knocked our confidence. But then we got together again just before the pandemic and we were in the pub this time, so there was alcohol and we just had a good conversation. We were like, we've got, we can make it happen ourselves. Like, we don't need this, like, intermediary making all these promises. Like, we can do it. And and so that's when Lizzie suggested talking to Avery Hill um, because they'd published something of hers before and they're just brilliant. And she said she'd had this incredible um, relationship with them and incredible experience working with them. And we were like, well, let's just approach them directly and talk to them about this project. And that's what we did and had a great conversation with Ricky Miller, one of the two directors. And then he won agreed to publish it. And so that was just before the pandemic. And so we'd had all these ideas about spending months like lying around in London parks talking about ideas. But obviously then it just turned into Zoom. But it was an amazing thing to get to do over the pandemic because it was just literally like another world to be immersed in. Um, And I feel very lucky that I had that because I know, I feel like if I didn't have that project set up and I'd gone into the pandemic... I might have struggled to like come up with an idea during the pandemic. I don't know if you guys had that experience, but I just felt so lucky that I, I was like, "This story already exists. I just have to work on that." That's why I'm doing, rather than like, "Oh, I've got to come up with a, an amazing pandemic idea." So I was, <laughs> I was so lucky. And then yeah, and I, I mean, I won't bore you with like. And then she sent me some pictures, and then I sent some feedback. Well, I
0: was gonna say what I thought was really cool, and I read about, I think, in your interview with. Well, whack Women Write About Comics, is... Because, yeah, I get it. At some point, you're like, we just sent a lot of emails to each other. What do you want? Yeah. But what I thought was interesting is that Lizzie also drew in journals and then sent them to you in the mail.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I'd written... I basically wrote, like... I took the stage play and I adapted it into a screenplay. So I sent her the screenplay via the medium of email. And then she she, like, transformed it. She became, like, the director. And like the cast like she was all the people if I'm comparing it to making a film because I didn't know how I I didn't know how to write a graphic novel script I didn't really know what that was so I was like I'm going to write a screenplay because it's basically the same thing surely because it's describing action and then that action in a film becomes like that's like the director acting actors but in a graphic novel it's like she's the director drawing People making them act on the page. So that's what I did. And she was like, Oh, this is amazing. This is so much clearer. And I have so much freedom, but also so much guidance. And so, yeah, then she sent me the roughs as like a big, gorgeous journal in the post. And I covered it with post it notes, being like, This is amazing. This is great. This is great. I can't remember what this is. Should we get rid of it? And things like that. So it was a really nice process and so nice to like have something in my hands.
0: I was going to say about that tactile experience and like, you know, I feel like the pandemic has made everything terrible, obviously, for, you know, millions of deaths reasons. But also, it's made everything really cold, right? Everything's virtual. To some degree, my whole career has been forever. So, it's not—I live in Colorado. You know, it's like I'm not I'm not taking meetings. Friends. Yes. If you thought I was taking meetings, I'm not taking <laughs> meetings. Unless they're with my dog. And then, typically, they're just me kissing my dog. So, uh, those meetings perfect. were very well. Yeah, it—, it Those are the ones that really get me through this time. But it sounds like to have something physical, like anytime someone will send us a review copy of a book and they send us the physical book, it's such a nice reprieve, you know, from like, oh, let me go from looking at this screen to this screen to this screen. So I'm curious, did that help sort of the creative process to have something tactile in your hands?
3: I think so, yeah. Or it was just a treat anyway and... It was exciting to see. I think it's also important to see like how much work there is, right? Because if you're just scrolling through a PDF, I don't know, it's different. Whereas if you get like a stack of papers, it's really like, wow, that's, that's, that's the work. You've done all of those pages. And it just feels, yeah, it just feels a little more vivid, a little more real.
2: I was going to ask because you were talking about how there were a bunch of different stops and there's moments where you question the project or if the project is even going to happen. And I was going to say kind of in the same vein as like the versatility thing that we were talking about earlier That's something where I feel like a lot of people hit that hurdle and then they're done and they're like, well, that didn't work out whatsoever. I'm the opposite. Like I've taken projects way too far, even though like it clearly was not working. (laughs) I've definitely done that a bunch of times. But I was wondering, do you think that that's an important thing to say? Because I always tell people like, yeah, you'll have partnerships that dissolve. You'll have projects that don't go anywhere. You'll have projects that you're kind of embarrassed of years later, like, or I do, (laughs) for sure, specifically. (laughs) So I'm curious, is that something that you connect with? I always think that that's like a good thing to say is be like, look, there's going to be challenges along the way and you kind of just have to keep going or, you know, switch tacks, go to something else, like all of that kind of stuff, which is why I always have like three projects. Exactly. And I think
3: it's, it's really important to be able to let things go sometimes and to grieve them and to say, I am so disappointed that this didn't get to be in the world and be sad. I feel there's a shame around being sad and being disappointed, especially when you're talking to other people. You know, we feel like we have to be like, I'm nailing it. I'm smashing it. I'm doing all these things. And actually... I don't think that's true. I don't think people actually want to hear about that. I think people would love it if you turned up for a coffee date and you were like, I'm really sad. Like, my show didn't get made. And then you can have a coffee and move on and let it go. So I do think it's important to let things go and process that and be disappointed. But I also think you have to check with yourself, like, have I fought for this enough? Because there are so many factors that might be at play, especially if you've been socialized as a woman for the majority of your life it doesn't just apply to people who've been socialised women, but, like, I think a lot of the time, it's it's like that thing of kind of being apologetic for yourself and not wanting to take up space and all of those things. And so I think if that's happened, like, you've got to check in with yourself because there's a chance that, like, you're not being confident enough. You've got to think, like, what would an average straight white man do? Like, he would probably just be like, this is brilliant, let's get it made. And I think you sometimes you've got to sort of tap into a little bit of that. And I think with me and Lizzie, it was easier for me to have that approach because I was fighting for both of us rather than just me. And so I could see it with more objectivity because I was like, she's brilliant. I want her project to succeed. And by extension, I was saying that about myself as well. And it's a really important lesson. It's like, look what happens when you don't just go, oh, yeah, that agent was probably Picking up on the fact that we're both human garbage and we shouldn't be allowed in the world, but I wasn't thinking that because it was Lizzie. I was like, "How dare you think that about Lizzie?" And now I'm I'm gonna try and take that energy into my solo projects because it's like, hang on a minute. Like I think deep down somewhere you do know if it's a, if it's a great idea or not, and you know that if it's worth fighting for, and you also know if it if it maybe isn't, or you also know if you fought for two years and then you're tired and then you can let it go. But I think it's about like tapping into yourself and your own knowledge of that rather than looking to external eyes to validate you or tell you that you're allowed and give you permission. I think I'm just tired of that at age 39. Have you both gone to sleep? Because that was a long monologue. No, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was, I was just thinking about it and being like, that's a Yeah, those are all really good points. Sometimes I feel like I get very stonery or like hippy-dippy kind of where I'm like, yeah. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. I was also just really deep in thought. I was like, wow, like that's such a great mentality because you're right. Yeah, yeah, and I talk to women and non-binary people and trans people, queer people, whoever, because I think a lot of us who are gender or sexual minorities deal with imposter syndrome in some form or another. And I'm using words that, like, let's all just know that they don't have direct meaning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to describe a phenomena that we don't have a lot of language for. And you know, in work, I'll always be like, oh, would a would a straight white guy apologize for you know taking a day off? Like, I don't, I don't think he would. I don't think he would. Having work with money, I know he would not. <laughs> <laughs> but then to translate that to creative work, you know, I haven't never quite thought about it just like that. And I think that's exactly it. And what makes it difficult, right, is you're. As an artist, an independent artist in particular, you're always walking this line and then you add like a, you know, gender minority, sexual minority, racial minority, the list goes on. You walk this line of like, you got to be your greatest hype man, right? Like Mm. you have to believe the lie of how amazing and perfect you are. And you got to be able to take feedback.
3: Yeah. And that
0: is like a really hard bounce back and forth. And I'm guessing that's something you spend a lot of time doing. So I'm curious then, how do we harness this, like, I'm the shit energy and harness this, I'm also a person in process, and all my creative pursuits are thus also in process?
3: Yeah, I, that's such a good question. And I think I think the key is, like, I don't think you have to think, like, I'm the shit. I think you just have to think, like, I am who I am. I'm just a person in the world. So, like, I'm not the shit, but I'm not human garbage I'm just a person, I like hold it lightly. And so then when someone gives you feedback, it's not like heartbreaking, but also, so they might be right, but also they might be wrong. And it's just kind of that sense of like trying, which is so hard to like move away from the ego, I guess, isn't it a bit? Because I do think we know, I think when someone gives you feedback, like I think you do know inside if it's the right feedback or the wrong feedback, but it's hard to get to that knowing because there's all these voices being like, this is exactly what my mum said. <laughs> I'd amount to nothing. Do you know what I mean? There's all this like stuff Absolutely. and all this noise, but I think we do know. Like, we if we just like sat for like five minutes, we'd be like, "No, I think that feedback's really good," or we'd be like, nope, that doesn't apply here. Thank you very much. Move on."
0: Yeah, I'm an editor, and I, I constantly talk to authors about this because I think it's actually the most important thing you can do as a creative is figure out what that internal moment is when you're you're like ding 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 yes. And when are you like, nope, yes, I don't need that. Because you're the only real internal check. I always say, you know, if someone gives a comment, usually they're describing something. They may be able to say there's something off here, but the thing they say is off. Like, if you've studied psychology, you know we're all just a bunch of rat bastard liars, you know? Not a one of us even knows what's happening inside our own heads. So when we ask people who maybe aren't as into script writing, as deep into comics for their feedback. Like, they're not going to really know the words to use in the right places. And even if we do work with the very best and greatest of editors, it doesn't mean that they get it right every time. You know, like, they're, they're just using the tool they have as fallible humans to comment on what we've created as fallible humans. And so there's so much that's just really difficult to define. There's no checklist you can give someone of like, here's how you know when to take someone's feedback, and here's how you don't know. You know, it's like, oh, just time. Yeah. Getting more feedback. Exactly. Learning. That's how you do it.
3: <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, like, I, I feel like in the past, I've been in positions where, like, also people are paid to give you feedback. You know, they're, they're like getting paid a daily rate to give you a page of notes on your scripts. And so they've got to say something like I used to feel when I was younger. I used to just feel like if someone says something, it's true. So I've got to act on it. And then it's like, no, they don't even care that much. They're just trying to think of things to say. And (laughs) now I like, I tell Mm them, I teach script writing a little bit um, as well. And when I do that, I say to my students, I'm like, I'm going to say some stuff, but like, I'm not in love with your project because I'm not you. So don't think of it as like, I'm the sage telling you what's wrong. Just like I'm just a I'm just some eyes, and like we can use those moments as like lessons. But sometimes also you can see that it's just someone else's baggage that they're just like projecting onto you, and you're like, yeah, I'm gonna totally, I'm gonna leave that one.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. This is the other reason I believe in drafts, and Sarah has heard me get on this soapbox many a time. But I'm like, listen. Your first draft, a lot of your bullshit's going to end up on the
3: page. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <And> you want to
0: <laughs> cut that before anyone else sees it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Too
2: true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, as we're talking about Light's Planets, people, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the text itself now. You know, learning about the process. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Molly. That is quite the life this beautiful graphic novel has had, a story, I should say, and, and the different forms it's had. And I think there's so much that's unique about Light's planet's people and you know I'm I'm sure a lot of that does translate over from the the story itself but is truly unique for graphic novels and probably literature one of them is having not just a queer protagonist but having a queer protagonist who's an older woman
3: yeah and
0: a scientist and I would love to hear about you know you you knew she you wanted her to be a woman but how did you come to the age and why why do we need older queer women characters so so desperately. Because I had such an intense reaction to her, even as, like, not a woman, just as a queer person. Just to, like, see... Yeah. To see, honestly, a queer couple struggle on the page was just, like, so nice. And then for them to be
3: older, I was like, oh, my God, you mean there are decades after this one? I'm very much looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you. um Yeah, I, I, I knew she was going to be a woman because I just... I don't know. I just met this guy, Don. And I was like, I want to, I want to tell his story, but I, you know, we have enough stories about, about men. And and so I thought that might be interesting. Um, and I wanted her to be the age she was because I just think that's a like, it's a fascinating age. Like she, so she's 60 and I think it's such a fascinating age because you're sort of you're so wise, surely, because you've lived such a life, but also you are sort of reaching the end of your like professional life. And so in terms of like meaning and purpose, you know, because we're taught so much, aren't we, in our society that, or in Western society anyway, that like your work defines you. And so I was like, okay, how can I raise the stakes for her so much? Like, so make, I'm going to make her this age. I'm going to make her like looking down the barrel of of retirement at some point in the next like decade or five years is like normal over here for like women to retire at like 65 max. And so I was like, that raises the stakes in terms of this mission. And then how else can I raise the stakes? And so that's when I developed her like bipolar because I was like that, you know, I wanted her to have these secrets and this complexity. And I also, I feel like like I'm obsessed with writing about Women, I suppose, mainly, but, like, anyone really who is trying, who struggles in relationships, who is, like, a sort of perennially single person. And, like, that's... I put a lot of, like, my stuff into that first draft as well. And, like, there are some lines, actually, that still made it through that I'm just like, that's just what I think, and that's what Maggie's saying. But luckily, it's what Maggie thinks as well. Um, And so... Yeah, like, the, I, I think that's so interesting to be, like, a 60-year-old, but be struggling with relationships. Because it's so often, like, it's like, someone's in their 20s, or they're like, they're, it's like a woman who's about to turn 30, and all her friends are getting married. What is she to do? And I feel like we've that story is so played out. Um, but it's like, what if, you know, what if, like, those problems and those questions continue, as well as all these other factors in your life? But what if you get to 60, and you're still having the same kind of dilemmas about vulnerability and about... Sharing your life with somebody and about that conflict between the desire for intimacy and the desire for autonomy and the things that you want to share with someone, but you're so scared to share with them. Like, what if someone is still experiencing that at 60? I feel like that's probably really feasible. And also, like, I think there's like a purity to Maggie because I know so many people from that generation. I'm thinking about my parents and friends of my parents, and just like people I know of that age who like aren't happy because they thought they needed to be normal, quote unquote. And like, that's the one thing like Maggie didn't do. So even though she's sort of sad and she's like messing up her relationship with Jane, there's a sort of, I don't know, there's a sort of integrity to her bad choices because she didn't do the, the normy thing. And I just thought I wanted to explore that, but not from the perspective of like a, a fucked up 25 year old, because like I said, that's kind of played out. And I wanted her to have that authority and I wanted people to be like, oh, spending time with Maggie's like, scary like I'm being told off by this like cool older lady but also <laughs> she has that gorgeous vulnerability as well because we all do right like we don't stop being vulnerable and scared when we're in our 60s i assume <laughs>
0: yeah it seems from here that that is true i also just really loved the way that she was a fucking mess right mm. like i guess i just feel like all the like girl boss stuff gets on us you know and it's like everybody needs to be grinding we need to be at our top We need to be perfect. We don't make mistakes. We break the mold, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't—I lie face down on the floor every single day. (laughs) Like, Yeah. And those are the good ones, too. Like, the bad ones, I have a hard time getting out of bed. I ghost people. You know what I think was really nice is the narrative— because of the inclusion of the therapist, doesn't give her an out, right? Like it's so easy to either go either way of like, you're a piece of shit for not reaching out to people or, oh my God, you were depressed. Nothing in the world can count against you. Like that's a freebie. And I definitely am team B. Like I'm like, oh, you're depressed? Fuck it, nothing matters. Mm. And the truth is, even when you're depressed or dealing with some other issue, if you hurt people, you're still responsible for that, right? And so she's held to this commitment she's made you know she's held to this self she wants to be even as she kind of like tries to find ways to slip slip out from underneath it in her therapy sessions i just think it was really cool and I, i like that idea of like we fuck up and we're responsible and we have to have grace for ourselves and i'm curious you know you talked a little bit about that being and this is like my obviously translated version of what you said uh but that being one of the themes you grapple with and and i'm curious why that was so important here with Maggie. Like, why did Maggie need to not get like, a oh, you're bipolar, that's a freebie, and nor you're a piece of shit for not living up to who you said you wanted to be?
3: Yeah, I think, like, I think, again, it's about, like, I wanted the theme to sort of be about self-acceptance. It's like, I needed a therapist to say to her, Jane isn't not with you because you're bipolar she's not with you because you didn't tell her. And that's such an important distinction. It's about owning our shit, right? It's about us all going like, yeah, here's my deal. Here's my baggage. And like, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, it's probably going to be okay. Like, because it's not about it's not about what's going on with you, but it's about the way that you're dealing with what's going on with you. And if you're not dealing with it and you're hiding from it, then like, that's the problem, not the problem itself. And so she's like, her whole life, she thought she had one problem, but she had a different problem. And I think that's probably the same for a lot of us. You know, like we walk around with these ideas about what's wrong with us. And it's like, no, it's fine. Just say it, just say it, just say it out loud. And you probably find that it's okay because we're all massive wankers on some level, do you know what I mean? Apart from me, I'm perfect. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, but I know all of <laughs> you Yes, are. everybody else apart from the people on this call.
0: <laughs> Especially our listeners, wankers each and every one.
3: <laughs> I think that it's important um, to talk about the fact that like, this is going to, I feel icky about saying this. It feels controversial, but I feel like it's important to remember that like you can you can have a mental health thing going on and also be a dickhead. Do you know what I mean? And like responsibility is like kind of separate from mm. it. And I suppose I'm just making the same point that it's about owning that it's about owning your shit. And I think like we've all got so many things to hide behind all of the time, haven't we? And I think like obviously with bipolar, that's like that's a really significant and serious thing that is happening for Maggie. But like I don't think it's true that like someone with bipolar can't be in a relationship. Do you know what I mean? Like of course they can. Yeah. It's just about like it's just about like how they communicate about that about that thing and being with the right person.
2: Yeah, I like that that is part of the story that's told here, because I definitely know a bunch of people who are in wonderful relationships and literally like will be like, yeah, that's because I knew that, you know, being bipolar meant that I was going to have to do some work, you know, and it's the same as any other person. It's like if I go into a relationship, I know I have to do work on myself in that relationship there's parts where you can just see her being like, and I'm not going to work on this. <laughs>
3: like, yeah, exactly. And I feel like actually like some people I know, like you, like actually sometimes it makes it easier to have a relationship because you can say like, I've had this diagnosis and therefore, and I've learned this about myself because of it. Whereas if you don't have like, if you don't have a diagnosis, you're like, I've just been, I've diagnosed myself as like being a dickhead and I don't <laughs> know what I need. And I haven't even thought about my boundaries because I've never really had to because I've had the luxury of like, relatively robust mental health and like that's a real privilege but also it's like a curse in some ways because it means sometimes you don't really you don't do that thinking that makes you have to express yourself to somebody and say so this is what i needed these times
2: right because we Ooh. were talking too already about how it's like there's so much pressure to be like i'm doing great yeah exactly <laughs> so whenever people are like it's fine, everything's like all messed up and I did something that sucked. But you know what? Like the world is going to explode someday or something and you're just like, okay, can we back up for a second? <laughs> <laughs> just like a dress. Sarah,
0: stop reading my journal. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot of doomsday shit. I'm like, yeah, imagine how my therapist feels. Uh, She's like, honestly, I was feeling okay. And then you came in and now I'm worried about myself. I'm like, yeah, no, I've thought of all the possible outcomes. I'm kidding. My therapist is always like, so, it sounds like you're intellectualizing.
3: Same. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like, stop telling a story. real talk.
0: I know, right? She's like, why are you trying to make me laugh? I'm like, I don't know. I just thought it was really funny and you might enjoy it. And she goes, I did laugh. But that's not the goal here today. Oh, God.
3: Oh, like, oof. I feel so so seen.
0: (laughs) Listeners, 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 can you believe it's a new year? It is 2022. How? I don't know. But here we are, and that means we've returned with another issue of Decoded Pride. Check us out at decodedpride.com. So, uh, yeah, we're in submissions right now. So if you have a piece of speculative short story or comic fiction, uh, you can submit it. Just go to our website, decodedpride.com. Sarah, Monica, I'd love to hear what y'all are looking forward to with this year's issue.
2: More. Sexy, steamy horror stories about your exes that are not Doctor Afra, (laughs) (laughs) or they could be an analog of Doctor Afra. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, what if all of my exes are actually Doctor Afra? Was all the joke on you the whole time, Sarah? I'm just gonna keep thinking on it. Meanwhile, I would like to see some stories with cats in them. Cats that wear hats. Are you asking people to write Cat in the Hat? Cats that wear hats on shoulders. I would like to read Cat in the Hat on shoulders. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
0: I'm looking forward to reading a lot of Flash fiction. I'm really loving Flash. I think it takes a, a special skill to have a short story that has that like final line that makes you go, oh, damn. We have published some amazing flash in the past. So I would love to see more flash fiction. I also would love to see more short comics. So comics that are a page to two pages. Hey, go as long as you want. I love comics, so I'll take what I can get. But you know, our rates aren't the highest. So make sure you check those out before you start working on your comic. That's at decodedpride.com slash submit. I'm also would love to see more stuff that makes me laugh or cry. Hey, if you can do both in the same story, I love it. I'll be your biggest advocate. So, yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to reading. You know, and then I also love the whole process. I love getting to work with all the authors once we've selected them and getting to help them perfect their stories and comics and then pulling together the whole beautiful, wild project. So uh, it's going to be an amazing start of 2022. So we are open for submissions through midnight on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, bitches. And midnight is whatever time zone you're in. We really genuinely don't care. Yeah, make sure you do check out the submission guidelines. You can find our pay rates, all that jazz there. We really, really, really ask you to pay attention to those as you're submitting because it makes our jobs much easier. And uh, we do this for free. uh, So help us out. So yeah, please send us your submissions. You can also um, pre-order a subscription to issue three today. That's also at decodedpride.com. Come help us create more queer and trans science fiction, fantasy, horror, and what can only be described as the very, very weird, all speculative fiction. We appreciate you all, and we'll be back to tell you
1: more about it soon.
2: Essie mentioned earlier about the WUWAC interview, and we love WaWack. So first of all, was it Wendy who did that interview? Yes, I think it was, yeah. So yeah, always great interviews. Go ahead and read this interview on the WaWack site and definitely every other interview that Wendy has ever done because it's always totally worth it. But also... I was kind of looking through and there was a little bit on the collaborative process, but something that you said earlier I thought was really interesting was the collaborative process of developing the character and then it was kind of developing the concept, right? So you develop the character With the actor, correct? And then there was the development of kind of the larger story arc with the artist. So is that accurate in any way? I guess would be (laughs) my first question is my assessment there. But also, did you feel like there was a big change up in the way that the collaborative process went from working with somebody who's performing it on stage and then obviously switching over to graphic novels it feels like a completely different world so how was that transition for you
3: yeah you're absolutely right like both very collaborative processes that further extended the story world which is which was beautiful for me i definitely felt like with karen the actor i definitely felt like i'm in charge here and i'm the director and i'm this is my story and like and then she came in and was like it became more and more sort of of a collaborator and you know to the extent where if something didn't feel right in her mouth, she would say, I just, I don't think Maggie would say that. Or it it even turned into like, by the end of it, it was just like a look she would give me that would tell me that that line was a bit cheesy or a bit overwritten or a bit like me showing, showing off. And so that was a lovely shorthand. But I still always felt like, I'm I'm guiding this because and and Karen wants and needs that. And I need to be this kind of the sort of boss, the girl boss of this. Whereas with Lizzie, I don't know, because Lizzie's such a graphic novel expert, like she'd probably hate to hear me say that, but I just felt like I was in such safe hands with her. And I had questions for her about this form. Like this was her medium, right? So I felt like I had questions and I had questions around like, what's normal? And what's lovely about Lizzie is that she's really open and she's not afraid of admitting or or like just saying when she doesn't know things. So she's probably too much that way out, actually. She's probably too self-deprecating because she's so, so incredibly brilliant. And I don't think she knows that yet. But she would just be all right with saying like, yeah, I don't know. I always do it like this. I'm not sure it's the right way, but we could do it like that. And so there was a nice, it it was sort of more collaborative in a way. It was more kind of like, let's feel our way through this project. Because She'd never worked with an artist in the same way. She'd never received a screenplay as her map. And I'd never kind of worked with a visual artist doing the same thing. So it was a bit more sort of like, oh, I don't know. And... She didn't really give me too many notes on, like, the story itself. I think she really put her trust in me to know what I was doing with that. Um, So I was, like, I was pretty alone in, like, in terms of the story world. When it was a play, I, I got outside eyes. I worked with some really brilliant people, Alex Kelly and Rachel Mars, and loads of great people who were, like, dramaturgs and outside eyes. But by the time it came to the, like, writing the screenplay for the graphic novel, it was the pandemic. And I was like, oh, I just want to do it. I, I just, I I don't know. I, can't, I don't have any more money to give anyone. I just want to, like, do it in my bedroom and just see what happens and, like, trust myself. And I just knew so much about Maggie at that point. I knew that we needed to see Jane and meet Jane and spend time with Jane, because in the play, we, ne- we never do. We just hear about her. Um, so I knew there was, like, a whole chunk of story that Maggie in the play just, spoke about and told the therapist about, and we were going to see that. But because I'd done all that planning for the play, I, I knew them like, all the things that had happened to Maggie, she just didn't, we just didn't see them. I knew that they had happened to that character, so I was like, oh, I just need to, now I just need to, like, realise the things that I'd already decided had happened to her.
2: So I was also wondering, because uh, I'm not 100%, but does she use watercolors on some of these? I couldn't quite tell for sure, but it seems like maybe the medium switched a couple of times. But I think part of it is watercolor, right?
3: Yeah. So part of it is watercolor and part of it is ink. The depression bits are all done in like ink. And um, then she uses like crayon for some of it. And
2: mm-hmm.
3: yeah, she so like switches with the different story strands. I exactly, think. Exactly. Like, yeah. Pretty um, reliably with each of the different strands, she switches to a different medium, which I think is very clever indeed.
2: Yeah, the style of it—it's first of all just really captivating to read, and it also does help tell like where exactly you're at, which I think is truly brilliant. And I was curious if that was something that was a, like a collaborative thing, or if it, or if that was a discussion that you had where it was, I want different parts of the story to look differently, or how. How did that work out? I think that was both of us. I think it was a very instinctive thing
3: for both of us to be like, we've got to delineate between the three strands. And the f- I think the first script I gave Lizzie, the strands were all separate in, in the actual script. So it was like, first we spend all of the time in therapy. Then we spent all of the time here. Then we spent all of the time here. And then it became more integrated and like swapping between the two. And so when it became more integrated and we were moving between time frames and locations I was like I think it's confusing I think we're really going to need like a lot of visual information about about where we are chronologically and about where we are um, geographically and we're going to need the art to do a lot of the heavy lifting because I really didn't want people to be confused and I know that like if you're used to reading graphic novels, you know it's not it's not hard. But I wanted this graphic novel to also appeal to. I was aware that like I have an audience that isn't a graphic novel audience, like is not a comics audience. So I was like, I think a lot of people are going to read it who aren't comics people, and I want them to be able to understand it. Do you know what I mean? I want them to be able to like follow the narrative without. And and I think I didn't maybe I didn't need to worry about that. And I was being a bit patronizing. But like it was just important to have that clarity as well as then like what that can do emotionally and like the sort of metaphor of the different mediums and what they can represent.
2: Yeah, it doesn't seem patronizing to me. It does seem like it was something that really helped the story click, right? I agree with that.
0: I think I was also going to add on that same front, the lettering was so key to communicating the different tones, sensibility, especially because we're seeing Maggie from different points of view and she uses a different voice, right? And then the therapist being in the more cursive letters, and those in the therapy sessions, and then Maggie's letters being those like big chunk block mad letters. Oh, it was just really, really well done. Lizzie killed it.
3: Yeah, she really did. So I'm so lucky. I, I worry that she'll never work with me again though, because she's already like too famous. But. I don't know. Maybe I could just like undermine her confidence um, by like <laughs> nagging her, Perfect. and then Perfect. and then she'll want to work. She'll need me again. That's uh, that's, that's, that's what that's healthy, creative isn't it? Creative <laughs>
0: partnerships are based on. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I sometimes I just say really mean things to Sarah, and she's like, "Keeping me here." Just kidding, folks. I would never. I think Sarah is the greatest thing that ever happened in my
2: life. <laughs> and also, what's really funny though is when people say mean things to me. I'm like, you know what? That's fair. And I just move on with my life.
0: Can you imagine me
2: saying something mean to you? No. Like, what would I even say? All I,
0: all I ever say is like, Sarah, you're incredible. You're
2: amazing. You're my hero. Uh, I'm so. so sick of you talking about your adorable pets.
0: <laughs> oh, gross. I'd be like, send that, that hurts. <laughs> I'd end, this, end the put down with like, but also I haven't had a photo today. Could So could you send me one, please? Oh. Yes, and I
2: will. I always will. <laughs> Did you have other questions, Essie? Because I believe that that was mine mostly. Awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so cool learning about the process. It kind of,
0: gosh, forgive me. I'm going to get a little hippie here. It reminds me of the process of like healing in that it's not linear. It's a spiral, Mm -hmm. right? Like you always, you come back to places, you come back to things, but they're never quite the same as they were before. And I think it's really cool that a book about pain to some degree and one's own failures could mimic that in its creation. That just feels like really beautiful
3: and like meant to be. Mm, That's so lovely. What a great thing to say. And I feel like this medium is, that's why I love this medium so much because you can be part of those choices. And like, I'm so interested in content and form and the relationship between the two and when form can represent content. But it's something that you don't, you don't have the luxury always of having any control or power over. You know, like if you write a screenplay, it's just like, well, you write a screenplay and then someone's going to make the film and who know? do you know what I mean? And it's like, it's, exactly. it's really tricky to kind of have those conversations. But this feels like, wow, like that makes perfect sense. And surely then for an artist, it's more interesting anyway, because then your your work is like, it's really, it's really working hard.
0: Mm, I got so much to think about. This is very meaty. You know, my last question is totally on a different topic. Uh, But so you directed Grace Petrie's recent music video. It came out this year or no, last
3: year? Yeah, last. year is it? uh, (laughs) It was like, when was it? I think it was like October or something. Okay. Relatively recently. yeah. So, you know, Grace
0: is your girlfriend and I just wanted to hear about what it was like to work together on a music video because it seems like such an interesting intersection of your your two creative pursuits and skill sets.
3: Yeah, it was it was great. I mean, I felt very very nervous about it. Like I I really love directing, live work. I've directed one short film before and I I loved it, but I also found it incredibly stressful. I'll probably be like this for my whole life, just like, ah, I kind of want to be a director, but I don't. Like, it's not... It doesn't come that naturally to me, but I like it. Like, I like the people bit of it. I'm not very good at the visual thinking, necessarily. Like, I can do that on the page, but in in real life, I don't know. I think I just need to find an amazing DOP to work with. That's a different story. That's not your problem to solve. But so when she came to me and was like, would you be up for doing this? I... I was like, yes, but I I don't know. I really, like, stressed over it for a while. Um, But then she had a really strong concept because she's an artist and a singer and she comes to things with, like, strong visions. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just the way her brain works. She can see everything of, like, in terms of a song or an idea or something. So, like, she wouldn't really come to me and be like, Do you have any ideas for this? She'd be like, I've got this thing. Can you realize it? And so that made me relax a bit. So I was like, she knows the story. And she's already written the story because it's the story of the song, right? So I was like, I think I probably can do something with that. And then it became fun. And then I actually stopped being weirdly avoidant about it. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's sit down with a notebook and make a plan. We shot it over one day, which was terrifying Um, And she has this like boundless optimism about time and about what's possible. And I am more pessimistic and I'm more like, listen, I'm just not sure it's going to work. And like, I'm glad that she overruled me. You know, I'm glad that she was like, we can definitely do it in one day because we could. And I think sometimes like, you know, we could have also taken two days, but I'm not convinced the product would have been any better than like doing it in one day. And it was a thrilling day we had like three actors, but we also like had part of it was like a gig. So we had to get like 100 people into a space in COVID to like act as the crowd. And it was yeah, it was a lot. But actually, like people are lovely, aren't they? And they well, her audience are. And they it's just like full of lovely queers. And they were just up for doing it and like doing exactly what I told them so the last time I directed a short film, it was like five years ago now. And you know you know, when you do something and then you do it again in five years and you get to see the difference in yourself. And I, I was like, oh, I'm different now. I've got like different cells in my body and I'm more confident and I'm more, I'm more happy to like tell people what to do. And I'm not going to, if like a man tells me that I'm doing it wrong, I'm just going to be like, no, thanks. Whereas like five years ago, I would be like, yes, I'm so sorry. So it was really nice for me to see how I changed and developed As a director, and I'm happy with it. I think, like again, same with Lizzie. It's a bit like I'm happy because Grace looks good. Everything looks good. Like the song sounds good, and so I don't feel like I'm taking too much credit because I'm like I basically just did her idea, and she seemed happy with it. So that's that was really nice. So now I do want to do more directing, but I think I want to direct like other people's things rather than my own because it was just Mm. it's just it's a lot, isn't it? When it's like I've had my my passion project and I've got to like make it, uh, that just feels like that's too much pressure. But if you give me a script, um, I mean you, not you specifically, but maybe. I assumed you um, meant me specifically. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm on it. You could uh, give I'll me a script some. script to you by midnight. You could give me your journal. You give me your doomsday material. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just
0: traumatize the whole world alongside my therapist. Yeah, yeah, it would be fine. I mean, I assume it'll be an international bestseller. What else will we do? Bestseller? That's not even what movies are called. (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a nerd. I'm all it's an international bestseller, that uh, (laughs) Shang-Chi. So it's, it's, we've got an office in Hackney, right? That's the name of the song in the video? Yes. Okay. So what I thought was wild was given our conversation at the top of the episode, the song and the words are so relevant, right? Because they're about this ad agency of sorts, these managers, these, you know, the people who work on the other side of the creative work, right? Like the business side. And they're like, wow, we can fix you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just kind of Grace being like, I don't, I'm not so convinced I need to be fixed. And yes. I I watched the video like first thing this morning and I loved it. I thought it was so fun and you know, Grace has that amazing sort of like fuck you about her that is just like, you You know, queer people just fucking need that. We need that like fuck you because, you know, otherwise society will just drown us all in despair. Put that in the doomsday journal. <laughs> and, you know, I just I guess I really made me think about like, yeah, like you're right. So many of us creatives are fighting this this sort of fighting this battle between like, OK, you're telling me what people want from art. But you're doing it from a position of being a gatekeeper, right? An agent to producer. But do they, right? I'm like literally a queer person. I know what I want to watch. And I know what my community wants to watch or listen to or, you know, read. And so, you know, we get stuck in these conversations between these These pieces that almost feel like they don't work together. It's like when I'm working with an author, and I'm like, yes, we have to define your genre. And they're like, but I'm genre-defying. And I'm like, baby, we all are. We Mm, all are. Because genre is about marketing. It's actually not about the work itself. There are obviously lots of exceptions. But how have you grappled with that? And, you know, it just felt so interesting that the video was connecting to something we were talking about. And and I guess, like, how did you sort of have that meta conversation about a film that was about selling the film and the song, but it wasn't really about selling the film and the song, and it was a critique about how people sell the film and the song. Like, how do you get that meta-narrative to work, I guess, is what I'm getting to.
3: Yeah, I don't really know. Like, I... Because it, it's funny because I have um, I have this poem, so I still perform poetry all over the place. And um, I have this poem called Things Said to Me in Meetings with TV People and um, with TV executives. And it's just basically like a list poem of all the like dumb shit that they've said. Like, you know, one of them once said like, oh, the trouble is there just aren't any black directors. And, you know, just like things that these like 25-year-old White men called Josh most of the time have have said to me, and then so when I met Grace, like she'd had that experience that is in the music video where she'd gone to like this like branding meeting where they were like, "What are we going to do with you?" and stuff, and like we just both had quite a lot of those experiences and had that sort of like shared tiredness, like, exhaustion around those people, but also had both sort of forged our own careers against that and kind of going like not taking no for an answer and not. And especially, especially Grace, because she's like a butch lesbian. And so, you know, for her whole life, people have been like, oh, you don't look, you don't look like a woman. You don't look right. And like, what, what And what are you and what's your music and all of that stuff? And like, it's just, yeah, I think it was a real kind of connecting point for us when we met to be like, you talk about this. I talk about this. Let's talk about this for ages and have beers and fall in love. And so then like, it was, it felt quite serendipitous to make that to make the music video because it was like, yeah, this is like, this is, we really think this and we want people to see it. But also it's just silly and funny and, you know, all of those things. Whereas, you know, my poem's quite, I mean, mean, my poem's funny too, but it was just nice to be able to like do it with that, like the levity of the song because the song is quite upbeat and fun. So it's like, it doesn't feel like a lecture. It just feels like a fun (laughs) satire without sort of being too heavy about it.
0: Yeah. And it's nice that the actors all deliver that so well. You kind of like look at them and you're like, have you been in many of these conversations? Because I feel like the face you're pulling,
3: only a Josh could pull, you know, only a Josh could make that piece. I think we all have, right? Like anyone who's like, works in the arts and like, it's so amazing and freeing when you have the realization that the people, you know, in those positions, the Josh's, they're like, they are looking through one lens. And so, like, they've set the, the goalposts and the game is rigged. And when you realise that, it's like, oh, it's kind of depressing if, if you don't fit into what they want. But it's also so freeing because you can go like, no, these guys are bullshit. It's fine. Like, it's a shame that they have all this money and they're probably not going to give it to me for these reasons. But, like, that's OK. I don't have to spend any more time with them. And that makes me really fucking happy.
0: Mm. Well, you are singing our song. We are all about the, you know, take the money you got to take from whoever you got to We've both written for many a different publication. Um, But we also, we're really dedicated to independent pursuits. It's neat to just hear this and hear other people reflecting on these things. And I feel like it's not talked about a lot, but there's... There are these tiny revolutions happening inside people's lives all the time. And yes. that moment, I feel like, is one of them. And and if all of our little revolutions connect, then aren't we creating our own, for lack of a better term, market, our own exchange, our own place where we can read each other's work and, and be invested in, okay, what do you, with unbridled, what does your beautiful mind come up with? Oh, my God, I love it. You know, I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. So I think that's really exciting.
3: Yeah, and just like decentering those power structures, or like even if you can't because they're too big, um, it like I like what you said. Just like, yeah, take take some money off them and like don't it doesn't have to be a big deal. Like, I mean, and and also I know it's more nuanced than I've been saying, like some some Josh, you know, some of my best friends are Josh's, but like it's <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh. So, you know, you talked a little bit about you've had a graphic novel project in the past. This obviously is a huge success. I know you feel like that one, I believe to quote you, failed spectacularly, which is like another conversation for another day. But do you think you're going to make
3: more graphic novel comic work? Yeah, I would really like to. I would really like to work again with Lizzie. Uh, that would be my dream. Um, but I'm also open to working with other artists because it, like, uh, yeah, it's it's such a it's such a great form. It suits me so much, and it feels like this. Um, I don't want this to sound cynical, but it feels like my whole life I've been trying to write screenplays. I, I've been writing like feature films, and it. But it's so hard to get feature films made here. Um, but for me, like a graphic novel is like it's like a feature film. I experience it in quite a, in a, in a similar way like I read them all in one. It's like that same sort of balance between words and pictures. But there's like a, a sort of gorgeousness to it because it's not as they're not as commercial. They the stories are often stranger. They I'm often seeing like characters in those in these books and these comics that like I I recognize and like you know, I'm like seeing like a more diverse cast of Characters and like, there's just all these reasons to love them even more. And so I feel like, yeah, maybe it wasn't meant to be that I'm going to write features, but maybe like, this is that. Because it's like, it's so satisfying. And that's what I was always looking for with that, with like writing screenplays, which, you know, I still love doing, but it's like, if they never get made, then it's like, you've just written a blueprint for something whereas like seeing it get made with a book is just is just phenomenal. And um, so I'm I'm really I would love to work with Lizzie again. Lizzie if you're listening please work with me. Um <laughs> uh but also yeah, like working with another artist as well and having a different experience and and seeing, you know, I'm very open to that and I'm I know there are so many different ways to make a comic and I'm just really excited about doing that again. And I've got ideas, you know, and I feel like it's really exciting because with like writing f- screen and to an extent for theater as well like you know people expect a certain like a certain adherence to the structural principles the kind you know like they're all like so samey it's very hard to be experimental especially like when you're when you're like when you haven't made a film before it's very hard to be like my film breaks all the rules but I just feel like there's so much more freedom within the form of comics and graphic novels do you feel like that though like maybe I'm coming as like a naive outsider but do you feel like there's a kind of there are like structural things. I mean, I, I guess like it depends on the, the comic, right? Tell me.
2: I think that's the I answer. think <laughs> you're correct. Yeah, it's, it depends on the comic. There are like some rule systems in place, but then also I think that With comics, because it's such a smaller market than film usually, that there is a lot of freedom in order for people to do any kind of experimentation of format, right? Which I don't think is necessarily always there, like... You talk about the level of competition there is whenever it comes to writing scripts for films, and that's true. There's only so many films that get made every year, whereas the amount of comics that get made every year is more or less like who's willing to make them, <laughs> pretty mm. much. And, I mean, you know, there's there's more to it than that, obviously, uh, you know, self-publishing comics. Is a thing, but it is a lot easier to have a publisher behind you. So, in that world, there is only so many, but then there are so many queer creators that work in comics right now. And I see in film, there's a lot of, I think, you know, so many of us have had a lot of conversations around this where there is just. Either you see these like very perfect relationships or you see, you know, people are just in some ways, I think, afraid to do like a negative portrayal Mm -hmm. of queer people. Mm -hmm. Whereas in comics, all of the time, people are just telling their own stories. And I think that maybe that's a little bit what you were referencing because I think definitely to that whenever I think about... Queer creators who are doing interesting work that isn't necessarily defined by genre. I think about comics first.
3: Mm. Why are there so many queers in comics? Like, why is that a, such a form that seems to speak to the? Because we're so punk. I know we're so basically yeah. punk. We're yeah. like, you know
0: what? You weren't going to pay for it. I'll fucking make a fucking magazine. You know, yeah. like that's <laughs> that's that queer. You're not going to recognize my
2: validity as a human fuck you. I'll create my own community. We got our own bars. We got our, you know. Yeah. And it's easier just to have one or two people to make a comic than it is to make like a whole movie, right? You know, so it's a lot of times with movies, you have to bring in a whole lot of people to get those things made. And even as you were noting with the music video, even music videos need tons of people to get made. Whereas with comics, it's like, I'm by myself. I live in, you know, whatever small town. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't have anybody to collaborate with, you know, or something like that. I think a lot of people feel more comfortable being able to work just either with themselves or with one other person or maybe two other people or something like that. Mm. So I think that that makes it easier. Yeah. That's, that's good
0: insight, Sarah. That's that good is. Insight. Yeah, there's thank a lot, you.
2: lot of,
0: <laughs> thank y'all. I'll be here, I'll be. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that's the other piece, right? Is like, there's just that that sort of, uh, a couple of my really good friends are, are, are screenwriters and, you know, everything you've been saying, Molly, really resonates with their experience. And it's like, yeah, there's just so much less of a barrier for entry, I guess, when it's yeah. a comic or a story or a poem or a, what have you. So it's it's interesting how that, mm-hmm. you know, we we think of it as a meritocracy because we're liars. And <laughs> what it really is is like whose who's daddy has the bucks, right, to mm. put behind their terrible film. Um, we review terrible films over on our Patreon. So you want to hear what film you don't need to see because Hayden Christensen's brother financed it. That's
2: where to find us. I was going to say, like, Nick Cage was literally the first person who popped up in my head because I was like, talk about somebody who's just been supported, you know. Yeah. To do whatever the fuck. We're still seeing things that are like, Hollywood executives wouldn't talk to me. I was an outsider. And it's like, you we're not an outsider. Yeah, (laughs) oh my God. You have so many films. Like, how is that an outsider?
3: (laughs) There's loads of like queer (laughs) stories in film at the moment in like in the UK, and UK film. But it's so like, it's so funny. They're like, because they're like, they've realized they can't just make these like hetero films forever. But then the queer stories are like, they're so tragic and sad. So it's either like two gay men up on a hill on the moors fighting each other and then having sex (laughs) and then like killing a sheep or something. Or it's like (laughs) women in the past like drawing each other and then like maybe kissing and then dying. And it's like, wow, okay. This is the beginning of of something good, I hope. But it's like, I'm going to wait. I feel like you just (laughs)
0: named Sarah's two favorite (laughs) storylines.
2: Because I, I, literally like time, whenever people are just like, there's too many period pieces for queer people out, I'm just like, why are you trying to personally offend me? Because, <laughs> <laughs> that's just what I, I I will watch every single one or I'm like, yeah, there are too many movies and like that. And then I'll just hit play on Ammonite and be like, yeah, I'm so sick of this, like eating popcorn, having a great time. <laughs> Sarah likes to watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire on her birthday and have a good cry. (laughs) I love to cry. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless regardless
0: of Sarah's preference, (laughs) you're not wrong. That is a very limited story. And it's the same thing here in the States. Like, those those are the stories that are... Although, a new thing I saw this year is queer holiday films. But all of them are the story of why you should move to your hometown Mm. and make it more progressive. Oh, yeah. And I don't see that happening in my future. Disagree.
2: (laughs) respectfully disagree. Let's not say so it's so like we did. Fran
0: Drescher is
2: like the mom and you're just like, I wish Fran Drescher was my fucking mom. <laughs> I would move back if Fran Drescher was my mom. Yeah, like, for sure. Happily. Anyway. Well, what is coming up for you, Molly? So I have a new poetry book out this year which I'm
3: excited about. It's with a new publisher who I haven't worked with who are amazing called Bad Betty and I've got a, yeah, new book with them which is called Whatever You've Got and it's like poems that I wrote in the in the pandemic mainly, uh, but it. I'm not, I was about to say, but, but they're not that miserable, but like, whatever. They are what they are. Um, that's good, whatever you've got. And yeah, so I've got that coming up. And then I'm taking the show that I tried to take to Edinburgh in 2020. Um, and that didn't happen, but I'm taking that show again to the Edinburgh Fringe this year, which is called Stop Trying to Be Fantastic, which is about mm. all, my, all of my favourite themes. Suffering, self-acceptance all of those things. So yeah, that's what's coming up this year. Um and I'm trying also to carve out a bit more space to just have some ideas. Do you know what I mean? Just to just to have some notebook time to come up with some ideas. That's something I really want to do. I want to work less this year. But I know I've just listed loads of things I'm doing, so I guess I failed at that. But one you day. Know,
0: um... That's the eternal struggle, I feel like. Uh, We we just talked to our our good friend, Monica Estrella Negra, on the last episode about uh, rest and the importance of rest and how do you how do you take a break so that you can have a damn idea? Yeah. And just all I'm saying is let me know when
3: you figure it out because I would love to do that. The only thing that's like helped me is kind of to think rest is work because you like exactly like you said, you can't have an idea without rest. So it's work. So therefore we're allowed.
0: Yeah, I had all these like calendar things that were like, you're going to write fiction at this time on this day. And I deleted them all the other day. And I was like, oh, my God, I already have three ideas for stories. Mm. Like what just happened inside my brain? So, yeah, rest, nice. backing off ourselves. Yeah. Pretty important as we enter the third lap of the goddamn pandemic. Yeah, so then over on social media, if if you want followers, <laughs> which I'm assuming you do because you're creative, uh, where can
3: people find you? So they can find me on all the big the big boys. So I'm on Twitter, um, at Molly Naylor. And then I'm on Instagram, molly.naylor. Instagram is mainly just, I take photographs of the food that I eat in the bath. So check that out if you're into that. Um, and then I think I have- I will be following. <laughs> I think I have a Facebook, but like it's just racist from my past. So I don't tend to do much with it. Um, but I also have just like a website, mollynaylor.com, where I have all of my stuff- that I've done in my books and, my, and like you can link to my live show recordings and things like that. So yeah. Lovely.
0: We will. We will link to all that in the show notes. So listener, if you didn't have a pen
3: out, don't worry. You can
0: just click on the description of the episode you're listening to and we will have links to follow Molly and learn more as well as to learn more about lights, planets, people, the exceptional graphic novel we were talking about today. Molly, it has been a damn delight to have you here. You're hilarious. This was exactly the conversation I needed today. So thank you for being so buoyant. Oh my God, thank you
3: so much. Oh my God.
0: You're so welcome. Oh my gosh. Tell, tell Grace I say hi. <laughs> um, Sarah, as always, you're just perfect. I wouldn't change a thing about you. I wouldn't change that hair that's sticking up or that cat hair all over your
2: sweatpants. Bold of me to assume you're wearing pants. I wish you would stop bringing it up. (laughs) Are you wearing pants? No, check it out. Today I am. But the last time I went to a coffee shop, I looked at myself and was like, wow, you are wearing a blanket of cat hair. This is not even (laughs) a shirt anymore. So (laughs) thank you for bringing it up. I just wanted to tell that story.
0: (laughs) No problem. I had to wash my clothes, not because they were dirty, but because they were so covered in dog hair. So I get it. I guess that's kind of dirty. And then, Kate, you know, you are the greatest part of us. Molly sorry, even agrees. So sorry and thank
3: you. <laughs> sorry and thank you, Kate.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at, at bitchesoncomics. Our website is brace yourself bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in
2: charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those.
0: I'm Se Fleenor, you can learn more about me at seflenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore
2: Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous
0: peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land the Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.